0: you're visiting with us, I'll tell you that we're in a series that we're calling Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And in this series, we're working our way through different characters in the Bible to see how God encountered them right in the middle of all their circumstances. We began with Adam and Eve right after they sinned and how God spoke to them and asked, them, asked Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam's response to that. We've looked at Cain and Abel and Abraham and Jacob and others, and now we're on this character, Elijah. There is this interesting question that Elijah gets asked twice in the passage that we read earlier the service, and it is this. Elijah, what are you doing here? You know, I'm not really good at directions. It took me a while to admit that, actually, after my wife and I got married and realized that she was the navigational master of our our family. Uh, It took some humbling conversations for me to realize that I really didn't even know sometimes whether to turn right or left after coming out of uh, a neighborhood or or whatever. I, I even have a hard time with directions when I'm using my phone. I'll pull my phone out. I'm looking at the map and trying to think, where in the world am I? And sometimes I'll After wandering around for a little while, I'll pull out my phone and I'll see where I am and I'll think, Jonathan, what are you doing here? I don't know if any of you had that experience or whether this is just confession time for me personally, but this is my experience with directions. What are you doing here? It's a good question to ask ourselves, not just when we're wandering around streets, but also when we find ourselves in a position of discouragement or despair, And it could be that this morning you have moved from a place of courage to a place of fear, or from a place of confidence to a place of insecurity, from a place in which you felt positive and happy and excited to now a place that you feel very low. This is where Elijah found himself in the passage that we were looking at. He found himself, he was on the the highway in the sun and suddenly found himself in a low ditch in the shadows. It's all the more amazing to think about this considering who Elijah was. Elijah was the keen-eyed visionary, quintessential prophet. Here's the guy who strode right up to the throne of the king of Israel and said that there will not be rain upon your land until I say so. Here's a man with courage and rugged boldness that was willing to confront the king. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with him, I'll give you a brief sketch of the events leading up to the point that we're looking at here in 1 Kings chapter 19. After telling Ahab, the king, that there would be no rain upon the land, he was sent to a place where he was miraculously provided with food and water, ravens brought him food in their mouths so that he can eat. Elijah was a man who was familiar with the miraculous. After this, Elijah goes far beyond the borders of the land of Israel, far up north, and he's sent to a widow from a region called Zarephath, a widow who's uh, collecting sticks what she, for what she thinks will be her very last meal. Elijah tells her first to prepare something for himself, and after that, the, this widow's uh, jar of oil and the container of flour, they did not run out until the rains returned. Elijah was a man who was familiar with The miraculous. But these miracles the feeding of this widow, the raising of her son back to life, the dryness of the land, no water, no rain for three and a half years these did not compare with the dramatic effect of this miracle, this incident that we read of in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. You don't need to turn there, I'll just give you a summary of what had happened. Elijah was calling this contest of the gods. He wanted to prove once and for all who the true God was. Why? Because the people of Israel were bowing down to this false god named Baal. And Elijah throws down the gauntlet. And he says, "If Baal is God, then serve him. And if Yahweh, with the name the personal name of Israelite, the Israelite God is God, then serve him." And what we're going to do is build two altars. One to Baal and the other to Yahweh. And we're going to put a sacrifice on these altars and we're going to call out to the gods. And which God answers by fire is the one true God. Beginning in the morning and all throughout the afternoon, 450 prophets of Baal screamed and carried on, and even slashed themselves to get the attention of their god Baal. Baal, oh Baal, hear us, they cried for hours, but not their drops of blood could purchase a single spark from heaven. Nothing happened. Total silence. It's almost like Elijah's watching all this. He starts even to mock. They're finally done. Elijah approaches the altar, makes sure that it's completely soaked with water, And he gives a simple prayer and he asks that God would answer by fire and prove once and for all that Yahweh is the one true God. And instantly fire descends from heaven and consumes not just the sacrifice, but the wood and the stones and the dust and everything. And predictably, all the people who had assembled there, they fall down and they say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And it's almost as if Yahweh and his prophet Elijah have scored a decisive victory. As if the Baal worship will be over. But what happens next, Elijah did not expect. And that was a threat on his life. He had commanded the death of the 450 prophets of Baal. And in response, Jezebel, who was the dominant character in the relationship between her and her husband Ahab, king of Israel, says, sends a messenger to Elijah basically saying this, You have 24 hours and you're dead. And so Elijah, he flees. It's interesting to note when it says in verse 3, then he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. The last time fear was mentioned in the life of Elijah was when he was telling the widow of Zarephath, don't be afraid. And now he himself is fleeing in fear. So here's a question. How is it possible after such a breathtaking mountaintop experience, for Elijah to plunge so deeply into the valley of discouragement. How does that happen? Maybe here's the more, more important question. How does God encounter such a man in his discouragement? How does God confront us in our discouragement? And so I want to walk through this story here in 1 Kings chapter 19 in two parts because we see from verse 1 to verse 8 the journeys that Elijah is taking. Elijah's journeys. And the journeys reveal why he's discouraged. And then from verse 9 to verse 18, we're going to learn what he discovered when he got there. So two basic parts to this story, and this will be the divisions of this sermon so you can track with me. Why Elijah was discouraged, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, and then what Elijah discovered. Verses nine through eighteen. Why Elijah was discouraged. It's important to notice that Elijah actually took two journeys. The first was from Jezreel to Beersheba, and that's a distance of about 90 miles. Think of the distance from Concord to Franconia, all on foot. Okay? And the second journey was from Beersheba to Sinai, and that is about 120 miles. Again. All on foot. And after the first journey, Elijah leaves his servant and goes into the wilderness by himself. And the circumstances of this journey give us an insight into why Elijah was discouraged. And there are just four components of his discouragement I want to point out to you. Disappointment, fear, despair, and weakness. First of all, disappointment. Consider Elijah's disappointment after the result of this great conflict between Baal and Yahweh. I mean, it's, it's apparent that he thought this would settle the question. Like, no more issues of Baal worship anymore. I mean, Yahweh has been exalted as the one true God. He was the only God that could answer by fire. And yet after coming down the mountain and after the rains return, Elijah gets this threat on his life. I mean, he thought the tide was going to turn decisively and he was going to emerge as the victor, the lone prophet who was validated in everything he had said, and yet that is meant by a stunning disappointment, a threat to his life. There's disappointment, but there's also fear. Piled upon that disappointment was the fear. Jezebel hears everything that that Elijah had done and says, all right, Elijah, 24 hours and you're dead. You're going to be like the prophets that were just wiped out. And Elijah begins to fear. Fear is a terrible master. It will consume you with all the what-ifs, all the questions, all the uncertainties. It will cloud your perspective. It will sap your motivation. It will take away your strength. Elijah was fleeing. He was motivated by fear. Fear is often an important ingredient in discouragement. Maybe it is an ingredient in your discouragement this morning. Elijah experienced fear and this fear devolved into despair you see it here in verse 4 of chapter 19 he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying it is enough now o lord take away my life for i am no better than my fathers this is a low point when he thinks his life is not even worth living brothers and sisters This happens to people. This happens to Christian people who come to a point in their fear and discouragement and disappointment where you can actually be thinking the thought you never want to think, is my life really worth living? And besides this disappointment, this fear, this despair, there is another problem and that is his weakness physically and socially did you notice that he left his servant and went by himself his last companion he's in a vulnerable position socially and we are social creatures we are meant to live in community with each other but he's also weak physically he took a long journey and he didn't eat very well and he didn't drink very well he was thirsty and hungry and so what does God do in response to this discouragement? You know, it's, it's interesting to note that the first things the Lord does don't have to do with the deepest reason, the core reason of His discouragement. I mean, there, there, was, there was a core reason, there was a, a, the deepest reason at the very heart of things, and we're going to discover that later. But the first thing that God does is not deal with the, the core issue. He, he deals with some of the surface issues in order to get to the core issue. And it may surprise you how the Lord dealt with this in Elijah's life. Elijah was absolutely exhausted. He was tired. And he lays down and he goes to sleep. Your discouragement can very well be exacerbated or intensified by your utter exhaustion. So he falls asleep. And then an angel touches him, and wakes him up. Now, I really love this part of the story because if you just imagine what's going on here, here's a man who's taken this massive journey. He's lying possibly in a fetal position, discouraged, and an angel shakes him awake, and he turns his head, and he sees a cake, a cake on a rock, now, for some of you, that would just snap you right out of your discouragement. I mean, but, but this was God's grace in saying to Elijah, Elijah, you are just a man. Yes, you're a great prophet. Yes, you had the courage to confront the king of Israel, but you need food and water and sleep just like everybody else. Sometimes we could get really spiritual, overly spiritual about what we need. If you think that giving someone good rest and good nourishing food in response to discouragement and disappointment is is unspiritual, then you're being more spiritual than God. Because God knows what we are. God knows that we are made of dust and that we need nourishment and rest to be sustained. I find it interesting that this man who had plummeted from this height Of expectation down to the valley of disappointment when God wants to deal with this depressed prophet, did not say, Elijah, here's a book on depression. The angel didn't wake him up and say, Elijah, here are tickets to a conference on dealing with anxiety. He didn't say, Elijah, here is an invitation to join Pouting Prophets Anonymous. Here's what he did he said, Elijah, you want a cake? You want some water? You need some rest. This is what Elijah needed. This is how God, in his grace and mercy, deals with a man who's deeply discouraged. He deals with these issues. No, they're not the root issues. Did Elijah need an encounter with God? Of course he did, and he would get it. Elijah's problem was certainly deeper than his need for food and rest and water, but he did need food and rest and water. We should not forget how fully integrated creatures we are. The health of our bodies affect the health of our minds, and the health of our minds affects the health of of our spirits, our souls. And we cannot easily disentangle these things, nor should we try. I tend to think that the cake baked on hot stones tasted something like Brother's Donuts, which I enjoyed earlier this morning, but I don't know that for sure. I guess I'll find out someday. But there was something about these cakes that Brother's Donuts could not do, and that is it gave him the energy to take a journey for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is where Elijah went. Look at verse 8. He went he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb the mount of God. Now let me just remind you in the, in the process of the sermon we 're still looking at why Elijah was discouraged, but I need to tell you something about this journey that he made, the destination and how long it took him to get there. Why did it take him forty days and why Mount Horeb? what is the significance of that because it really would not take forty days to travel 120 miles even on foot. People estimate it should have taken him like no more than 12 days probably walking this this distance. Why did he take 40 days to do it? Well, the number 40 when it comes to periods of time is very significant in Jewish history. When God sent a flood to the earth, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The people of Israel wandered for how many years in the wilderness? 40. For three times consecutively, Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and how many days was he up there? Forty days and forty nights. Uh, that's the history leading up to the time of Elijah, but even after Elijah, you think of the prophet Jonah, who came to the city Nineveh and said, in how many days in Nineveh would be destroyed? Forty days. How many days was Jesus in the wilderness? Forty days. You see, this number 40 signifies a, this testing or this, this journeying, this extended experience. Of the people of God. And by taking not twelve but forty days to travel to Mount Horeb, he's identifying himself with the people of God and their experiences in their relationship with God. But there's also something significant about the destination. Because Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And that might not mean anything to you, but Mount Sinai is a very important location because it was on Mount Sinai that Moses, a prophet of hundreds of years earlier, ascended the mountain and received the law of God, it is at Sinai that God made this formal promise with his people saying, you are my people and I am your God. And he, he confirmed that promise called a covenant there at Mount Sinai. So what's going on here in terms of the, the, the length of time it took Elijah to get to Horeb and the location itself, Sinai, is, is very significant. This is the place that God had made a promise with his people that I am going to be your God and you're going to be my people. It is that promise that the people had transgressed by worshiping Baal. God had said from Mount Sinai, you shall have no other gods before me. And now the people are transgressing the covenant that had been made on Mount Sinai. So what Elijah is doing is highly significant in terms of how many days it took him to get there and the location itself. Sinai was a place of fire and smoke and shaking. It was a place where God had revealed himself in a stupendous, spectacular display of the miraculous. That was Mount Sinai. And that's where the disappointed prophet wanted to go. Perhaps Elijah was thinking, well, if God's not going to do something on Mount Carmel, if He's not going to do something decisive on that mountain where He set a fire to consume the sacrifice and the stones and the dirt, maybe He's going to do something on Mount Sinai where He once did. So what did Elijah discover? That's where he gets the question that we've been waiting for. What are you doing here, Elijah? The interesting thing about this question, if you ask yourself that question, let's say that you're discouraged right now. Let's say that you're in a valley of even despair. And you are asked that question, or you ask that question of yourself. What am I doing here? How did you get to where you are now? How did you get to such a place where you despair of the worth of living? Where you feel so down? and so discouraged, and so unmotivated, what are you doing here? Here's the tricky thing about that question, is that we are rarely even able to answer it for ourselves. Because it is the very nature of discouragement and despair to send a fog into our eyes and not be able to see the way through. Maybe if you were able to answer that question, what am I doing here, you'd be able to get through. But the problem with discouragement and despair and disappointment and fear and loneliness is that it clouds our ability to see and understand and forge a pathway. We can see this in Elijah's answer. When God asked him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He did not answer directly. He spoke twice, repeated verbatim of what he was doing for God discouragement and you might know this discouragement is like emotional and spiritual vertigo I have a hard time knowing even which direction is up it's like when I was a little boy I remember going to the beach one time and playing in the waves and one so big came and knocked me down and when I was knocked down I didn't even know which direction was up are you like that this morning What are you doing here? How did you get here? And from this episode in Elijah's life, we see three essential lessons Elijah needed to learn about. His discouragement. We looked at why he was discouraged and then second, what he discovered. First, these are lessons that Elijah needed to learn. First, Elijah was discouraged because he overestimated himself. Elijah was discouraged because he overestimated overestimated himself. Do you see how he overestimated himself? Do you see that in the text? What is his response to the question Elijah, what are you doing here? The very first word of his response is I. My zeal, my passion, my courage, my sacrifice. And where is it all gone? I've been very zealous for you. I've been very jealous for you, Lord overestimating himself and this overestimating of ourselves leads to some common delusions here are some delusions that we get when we overestimate ourselves first of all we get this we think this i deserve better than this or i am indispensable or i am all alone Have you ever felt that way? In your discouragement, in your despair, could it be that there's this overestimating of yourself that leads you to think, I deserve better than this, I'm all alone in this, I'm indispensable. But notice how gently God dispels these delusions. What does he do? He tells him later on, Elijah you're actually not all alone and you're actually not indispensable and i've actually been very good to you i gave you a cake on a hot rock when you were very hungry i gave you water when you were very thirsty And that food kept you going for 40 days and 40 nights. And hello, your heart's still beating and you're still sucking my air and you're still alive, Elijah, and I've been very good to you and yet you're thinking, I deserve better than this. And yet God is just dumping his grace on him. This is the delusion that comes when we overestimate our own importance and our own role. And God says, you're not indispensable. Actually, there are 7,000 people that haven't bent bent their knees to Baal. You're not all alone. You know, we we tend to isolate ourselves in our own thinking and and make ourselves believe, I'm the only one doing the right thing. And God says, No, 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 you're not. You know, it's easy for us to veer between these two extremes. On the one hand, we tend to overemphasize our own importance, and sometimes it's hard to tell as pride because it comes off as false humility kind of like i'm not worth anything i can't contribute anything i'm not good enough it's kind of like what elijah said earlier i'm no better than my father's well that's still overestimating your importance and here's what God does. The solution to this, this despair and pride is not to try to strike a balance between confidence and timidity. Instead, it's to practice the laser beam focus on God's gracious sovereignty. And here's what that means. In his grace, God can use you. In his sovereignty, he doesn't have to. God's saying, I could actually get along without you because I'm sovereign and there are 7,000 other people who serve me. But, but actually, in my grace, I, I choose to let you serve and have a role, and it's important. It's kind of humbling, but it's relieving at the same time. Here's the thing that Elijah needed to learn. He overestimated his own self. He needed to focus on God's gracious sovereignty. I'm in control, God says, so I don't really need you, but I'm gracious, so I will use you. Discouragement can come when we overestimate our own importance. We can see, find joy and encouragement when we instead focus on God's gracious sovereignty. But here's another lesson Elijah needed to learn. Elijah not only overestimated his own importance, ignoring God's gracious sovereignty, but he also focused on failures instead of God's faithfulness. He focused on failures instead of God's faithfulness. Notice what he said next. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, That's my role, overestimating my importance. And then he focuses on failures. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. Here's what he was doing. All he could see was the problem, the failures of the people that loom so large in his perspective. And was he right? Was he right that the people had failed? Was he right that they had broken the covenant, that they had killed the prophets of God? Was he right that they they had abandoned the worship of the one true God? Of course he was right. The problem he had, absolutely correct. He he was looking at this problem, but failing to look at God's faithfulness looming even larger. He's looking at people's failures, the molehill of people's failures, without seeing the mountain of God's faithfulness. And we could do the same thing, and that can lead to discouragement. Focusing on failures instead of God's faithfulness. Consider, Elijah, where you are. You're on the very mountain where God had made a covenant with his people that he would never break. God's saying, Elijah, think about where you are. I'm not the kind of God that breaks promises. I'm a God who keeps them. Elijah needed to focus on God's faithfulness. Don't we do the same thing? We tend to focus on failures. All we can see is the problems. The solution is not to ignore the problems. That is not the solution. The solution is to see the problems in light of God's character. There's another lesson that Elijah needed to learn. Elijah expected the miraculous. Remember we said earlier, he was a man who was accustomed to the miraculous. Birds coming with food in their mouths to feed him. I've never had that happen to me. I don't know if I would be brave enough to take the food out of the bird's mouth and eat it, actually. Fire coming down and consuming an altar, I've never had that happen to me. Elijah did. Elijah was accustomed to the miraculous. But what Elijah needed to see is God at work in the mundane. Encouragement is found in seeing God's work in the mundane. And here, I think, is at the heart of Elijah's discouragement. Remember I said that God deals with these surface issues. He gives them, he gives them rest and he gives them some, a cake on a hot rock and he gives him a bottle of water and he, and he, and he feeds and nourishes and, and gives them rest and then he gently reminds him, Elijah, it's not all about you. You're, you're not indispensable. I'm sovereign but I graciously choose to use you and, and furthermore, your discouragement cannot be validated by the fact that you're all alone and, and furthermore, Elijah, I am constantly at work in the mundane. Yes, you're used to the miraculous, and yes, God says, I can do amazing, spectacular things. But look around you at the millions of ways God is at work in the everyday, ordinary, normal aspects of life. That's why God paraded before Elijah these stupendous displays of power and was not present in any of them but a still, small voice. Elijah, come out to the mouth of the cave, God says. Elijah stands there and his cloak begins to flap in the wind that grows into this mighty roar like at a, at a theater or a stadium when the whole crowd rises to their feet and begins cheering. This wind was so powerful it picked up rocks and it tumbled them down the mountain and shattered them like fragile pottery. And yet after all this display, there's no presence of God, not the wind. The show's not over yet. Instead of coming from the sky, there is this rumble from deep in the belly of the earth. Elijah's sandals shake beneath him, and it's an earthquake, like the one that had shaken Mount Sinai years before. Surely God's going to come in this spectacular display of power. And after the earthquake settles down, God's not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire Oh, the God of fire, the one who appeared to Moses through the burning bush, the one who led the people of Israel with this column of fire, and still God is not in the fire. And then, in a gentle whisper, God speaks to Elijah. It was the Lord. You see, we can find ourselves greatly discouraged when we are always looking for God in the spectacular and fail to see that he's always at work in the mundane. We can limit our joy to what God is doing because we think that it's going to be a manifest in mind-boggling, impressive ways. And if we do that, if we just think that God is only present in the dynamite in explosions, we'd overlook the most important God, way God manifested himself. And that is through the gentle whisper of the birth of his own son upon earth. As quiet as a snowflake falling at midnight, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus of Nazareth, born into a humble peasant family, and yet the son of God, if that's humbling and mundane, even more humbling, even further down is Jesus' death, on the cross for sinners. And yet it is the foolishness of the cross by which God chooses to save the world. You see, God is always at work, always doing the miraculous, even in the mundane. You, maybe you'd be like Elijah. You'd be like, I want to see the 7,000. I want to see the 7,000 assembled in rows, armed to the teeth like a mighty army. You wouldn't recognize him that way. They're the humble single mom over here, just trying to serve her children and love God and stay faithful. It's the businessman over here who is being a testimony for Christ at work. It's the teenage boy or girl who's guarding his or her purity and getting up early to read their Bibles in the morning. These are the mundane things through which God is doing something miraculous, Just look around you. Look at this group. Here's a people who have just sang songs about God's mercy and grace, about praying that God would speak to them. This is miraculous. This is stupendous. This is amazing. Fixing cars, preparing taxes, processing loans, cleaning spilled cereal, vacuuming the floor, babysitting grandchildren, preparing a lesson, driving someone to a doctor's appointment, all to the glory of God. My friends, take courage. God is at work. Yes, some of the encounters with God that we've looked at have been spectacular, have been amazing. But you know what? God is at work in all the mundane things of your life. And so what did God have for Elijah? Some simple tasks. Here's what you need to do. Elijah, don't value zeal over obedience. I'm going to use you through the normal channels and you have a route to take and it's, it's back the way you came. This is what Elijah needed to learn this is what we need to learn. It could be, my friend, that you're here without courage in despair this morning because you have never met Jesus Christ and accepted Him as your Savior. Yes, He speaks to you in a gentle whisper right now. And His voice to you is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no, there is no mistake that God has brought you here this morning. It seemed like a mundane and normal thing for you to get in your car and drive here. But all throughout this, God has been orchestrating the events of your life to this very moment for you to trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior. It could be that you're sitting here and you're just assuming everybody thinks I'm saved. Everybody thinks I'm a Christian. Don't, Don't let your fear stand in your way of running to Him. The only way to be safe is to put your trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because one day, my friend, that gentle whisper will grow into a strong voice. The Bible tells us that Jesus will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. The word today is a word of invitation, come, but one day it will be a word of judgment, and we don't know when that day will be. My friends, take courage and take refuge in Jesus Christ.